Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Elizabeth Carolyn Miller, author of Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion, published this year by Princeton University Press. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of English at University of California, Davis, and I specialize really in 19th century British literature and literature of the British Empire. But um, after I published my last book, which came out in December of 2012, I really had started by that point to become more interested in environmental humanities as a field and wanted to start working on a project that engaged with environmental questions and specifically thinking about the legacy of the 19th century in terms of climate change, and other forms of environmental disaster today. So I started off at that point just kind of reading widely and trying to um, figure out what my more particular area of interest would be. And um, I think some of the factors that came into play in terms of moving me in the direction of extraction as my main area of interest in the history of mining, some of them maybe I wasn't even conscious of at the time, um, but looking back, I can I can see how I was influenced by them. Um, so first of all, I, I do have a branch of my family that emigrated to the United States um, to mine. Um, my uh, grandfather's family, my maternal grandfather, came over when he was a child uh, from northern Italy to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where there was... Um, a lot of mining of iron and copper. And uh, they moved to a town that um, was entirely predicated on mining the iron range up there. And it was um, mostly Italian miners um, that, that you know came from uh, a particular region of Italy and sort of all <laughs> moved together as a group to this one area to, to 
settle and, and work the mines. So um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and spent a lot of time up in the UP as a child in this mining community. And, you know, we went to historical mining sites all the time. The mines sort of were gradually shut down over the course of my life, although there is still some mining up there, but a lot of it is is closed down now. So, um, so there was that element. And then there was also the fact that I moved to California when I started my job at UC Davis and I enjoy hiking and camping and things like that. And so much of the um, kind of wilderness areas out here are, you know, marked by the historical um, mining sites of the gold rush and, and so forth. I mean, California really developed as a state um, through the rise of industrial extraction. So, um, so I think both of those shaped my interests a lot um, in ways that I didn't necessarily realize until later in the project. But then um, another factor was just that some of the writers that I was interested in, when I started to reread their work from an environmental perspective, I realized how much at the forefront of their minds, mining and exhaustion, resource exhaustion, um, how much those things were on their minds in, in a way that I hadn't really noticed before. And the, the more I kept reading, the more I realized that that this was pretty endemic in 19th century thinking, this anxiety about the birth of a new kind of society that was completely premised on finite underground materials um, and the idea that these materials were probably going to run out in a few hundred years. And what did that mean for the social basis um, of, you know, a fossil fueled society? Um, so, so I think it was a kind of combination of, you know, my, my own engagements with the natural world, you know, in my childhood and in my current life in California, and also just being guided by, by the writers of the 19th century and, you know, the factors that were really shaping the way that they thought about the environment. Okay. And you mentioned there that, you know, your interest is in 19th century literature, but for, for this book, you're kind of more specific uh, in your time frame. You're looking at works published between the 1830s and the 19th 30s. So why did you choose those parameters, that particular time frame to focus on? Um, yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I say that I'm focused on 19th century, but really my my research has always extended into the 20th century. Actually, my, my first two books were all on the turn of the century period, or both on the turn of the century period, 1880 to 1920. So this one goes back further. This is a longer historical arc, you know, than my previous books, but, um, but early 20th century is, has long been an area of research focus for me. Um, I guess I just tend to say 19th century because that was the area I was hired in <laughs> at Davis. So that's where most of my teaching has been um, in terms of undergraduate teaching. But anyway, um, the reason I chose 1830s to 1930s is because um, whenever you're trying to kind of rethink periodization and time scales according to energy history, you know, there's always, it's always a bit tricky to kind of pin down particular dates. But I think in general, you could say that the 1830s was the decade that saw a really decisive shift toward fossil fueled industry in Britain. So, of course, you know, the steam engines were developed in the 18th century. And, you know, there is a sort of steady rise in the use of coal. But it's not until the 1830s until that there's um, really a kind of transition to a majority of, you know, coal fired energy rather than animal powered energy, you know, water powered. The earlier um, 
forms of energy that uh, ran British industry, you know, before the rise of a fossil fueled economy. So, so I see 1830s as a really crucial kind of turning point, even though the the development of that, the you know, the years leading up to that turning point are also important. And then the 1930s, um, one of the changes that you start to see around this time is um, the beginning of a, a more literary imagination um, directed toward new kinds of ideas about proto-nuclear forms of power. So you have, you know, the impacts of new research on, um, you know, types of, at least theories of energy existing in all kinds of matter, not just in coal power. So you can think about like the beginning of the Manhattan Project is 1939. And this seemed like a good kind of cutoff point for the for the project. Um, even though, of course, we know that, you know, coal continues to be used. There's more coal used now than there was in the 1930s or the or the 1830s. So it's not as though this was the end of the fossil fueled era, but at least in, in a kind of like imaginative sense, it seemed like the end of an era where coal and hydrocarbons were imagined as, you know, the only possible energy source. It seems like at the end of the 1930s, there's a kind of shift in the imagination toward these other proto-nuclear forms of energy. Okay. And in the the title of the book refers to the long exhaustion, which is a, a term you use to describe the attitude that people had during this period towards these coal resources uh, and other things that were being extracted through mining. Could you talk a bit, little bit about what that term means and how it characterizes this period? Yeah, um, I'd be glad to talk about that. Um, the title of the book came to me at a pretty early point in the project because I started to really think about the ways that um, ideas of exhaustion were changing the temporal imaginaries of you know writers in the era of industrial mining and industrial industry. So um, I'm sorry, not industrial industry, industrial mining and um, uh, industrial extraction is what I meant to say. Um, so um, their idea of resource exhaustion, I mean, in some ways we can look back on it and say, well, this wasn't exactly right because there's way more hydrocarbons underground than, you know, is than they had any conception of and more than we um, ever could, you know, possibly want for there to be there, uh, given, you know, the current struggles that we're having with decarbonization um, and stranded at, you know, stranded assets being, uh, being a, a sort of fear of the fossil fuel industry that keeps, keeps the um, path dependencies of the past in, in place, even when there's so much evidence that we need to move off of, um, hydrocarbons. But anyway, so so you could say that their idea of resource exhaustion was was misguided. But the but what I'm really interested in is the way that it changed modes of thinking about the natural world and about industrial society in particular. So the idea was that there was maybe a few hundred years max left of coal underground, you know, going at the rates that they were um, moving into in, in the industrial era. And they, there was lots of discussion about metal, uh, metalliferous exhaustion as well. So, um, and basically any kind of resource that was 
reached through mining processes. There was discussion in the period about how much was underground, when it was going to run out. And, and this happened at the level of the individual mine as well as on a kind of broader um, basis in economic discussion. So generally, this process of exhaustion was thought about generationally. So there's this kind of trope of writers saying things like, we're using up the resources of our grandchildren, right? It was imagined that within, you know, maybe not exactly their grandchildren, but within 100, 200 years that, you know, their descendants were going to be feeling the effects of this kind of like overuse and lack of stewardship of underground resources um, in the period. And so, so this question of exhaustion and really of an idea of just by society functioning in the way that it had begun to function by this period, that you were sort of robbing the future. This is part of what I'm interested in, because I think it's um, a kind of parallel for the situation we're in now, right, where we know that the longer it takes to decarbonize, you know, the, the worse the effects of climate change are going to be down the road. And yet there's this kind of um, paralysis, uh, it often seems, in terms of making the changes, even though we realize that that's the case. So one of the things I'm interested in the book is whether we have this kind of um, longer, I guess, propensity to think about exhaustion in terms of, you know, this idea of robbing the future or of a kind of like temporary boom that's going to um, hurt others down the road, whether we've been kind of normalized to that through the way that resource exhaustion was conceived of from the very beginning of industrial society, really. Um, so that's one of the questions animating the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think you really lay out well just the shift in thinking of going from a society that was really tied to these, like you talk a lot about like the seasonal cycles and stuff that were very characteristic of people's relationship with the natural worlds before this boom of, of coal. And that that's something, you know, you can imagine those seasonal cycles continuing on indefinitely. And then there's this shift to a society that's so dependent on a resource that is very clearly finite and that it's, you know, if you're going to keep digging it, it's going to run out at some point. And that's just, you know, such a different way of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people, there's been a lot of work by literary critics on the pastoral form, for example, and the way that the kind of rhythm of the seasons informs that literary mode. Um, you know, if we're dating back to uh, ancient and classical texts. And so I do really see a shift happening um, in literature in the industrial era where there's this um, kind of recalibration of time according to these patterns of exhaustion rather than seasonal renewal. And this um, kind of imagination of society as having a, a base in extraction, overseas extraction and domestic extraction um, rather than being kind of based in agriculture as the primary mode of production. Of course, there's still agriculture in this period, but um, I think that uh, the predominance of, you know, themes of mining the literature alone suggests the, the way that there's also this new kind of temporality around resource extraction that's um, beginning to, to reshape um, ideas of narrative and time and so forth. 
Okay, so before we get too deep into some of the, the content of the book and the specific uh, novels that you analyze, uh, I was hoping you could say a few words about the structure of the book. So you've got basically these three mega chapters, each of which is broken down into sub-chapters about the individual uh, novels. You've got five works that you focus on in each of the the mega chapters. Uh, so you've got then it broken down into these smaller units about the specific uh, novels. And then each of these big chapters pairs up a theme that you're exploring with a particular genre of literature. So could you say a bit about your your goals with creating this structure to the book? Sure. Yeah. Um, I struggled a lot with the with the structure as I was working on this book and as it was developing, I kept feeling like really there were three central concepts that I wanted to explore in terms of this question of extraction ecologies. And one was time, one was space, and one was energy. So the time section, thinking about temporalities of exhaustion, the space section, thinking about the global frontier, um, ecological imperialism, overseas extraction, and the way that that um, really uh, shaped adventure narrative and um, uh, lots of other genres that sort of came out of the adventure narrative in the 19th century. And then thinking about energy um, in terms of the rise of speculative fiction in this period. So, so anyway, I kept feeling like I just had these three categories, but I also felt like you can't just have a book with three chapters, right? <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, try, I played around with different ways of organizing it, but I think what it came down to ultimately is that I really didn't want to have a book that was kind of like just doing a few close readings of a few novels. I wanted to have multiple cases for each of the main points that I was trying to make, right? Because I think this is something that literary studies struggles with that our main kind of like method of analysis is close reading. But when you do close reading, it doesn't allow you to do a really wide range of examples. So, you know, some people have started doing more distance reading computational approaches and things like that. But then there's this question of, well, how much of the, you know, nuance of the literature are you losing when, when you move into those more distance modes? So I think I was trying to do something maybe sort of in the middle where by approaching through genre and using these kind of like five main case studies per chapter, I could show that this was indeed, you know, a, a trope that extends across multiple texts. And it's not, you know, just one unique example in literature from the 1830s to the 1930s. So, you know, for example, in the, the energy chapter, um, being able to include The Hobbit at the end um, as my kind of like final uh, and latest example in that chapter, I think, I think it shows how some of the um, elements of extractivist thinking that are in The Hobbit, how that's really endemic to the way that a lot of speculative genres were developing in the 19th century, because it's tr tracing out these um, tendencies that uh, are visible in texts that come, you know, decades before The Hobbit as well. So, um, so that's how the project ended up having this odd structure. And my hope is that because the subsections are you know, kind of like prominently displayed in the book that people who just want to go to the book to read, you know, what I said about one particular work, say the time machine or something like that, they can still go to that section 
and, you know, find like a, a pretty brief and compact reading of the time machine that hopefully makes sense on its own. Um, but then the, the having the mega chapters allows me to kind of connect together, you know, five different case studies and to, to kind of trace an argument across multiple textual examples um, as a way of suggesting that, that this is a, a kind of wider and bigger thing that, you know, extends beyond one particular textual example, if that explains. <laughs> it was something I worried about, though, the structure, because I know the chapters are quite long, and it seems like the tendency in literary studies has been maybe towards shorter chapters um, of late. But um, but again, I, I thought maybe the subsections would be a way to make it almost like there's many chapters within the chapters. Yeah, I thought it worked well. Uh and I didn't have any problem as I was I was reading through it with the the way that you uh, put it together there. And I think it it emphasizes those themes that you're mentioning uh, very well by being able to group these things together while also covering quite a lot of ground. So you know, we're not going to take the time to talk about all 15 novels that you analyzed here. We want to, you know, leave something for, for readers to go get the book to dig into more. But to give our listeners a, a taste of what they're, they're in for if they pick up this book, I'd like to ask you to talk about just a few examples and kind of take us through, you know, your analysis, what you uh, pulled out of the, some of these works that uh, you that you analyzed here. So if we could start with uh, George Eliot's The Mill on the Floss, and you, you describe it in this really sort of socio-ecological uh, way as kind of a, a description of this initial rise of coal extraction as a, a book that's set in the 1830s. So could you say a little more about um, you know, how, how that particular book demonstrates some of the themes that you're talking about? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so The Mill and the Floss by George Eliot is probably not as widely read as some of Eliot's other novels. I mean, like Middlemarch or Daniel Deronda, but um, in a way, at least in my field, um, it's perhaps more than those novels um, really known for one particular thing that's often seemed to make it um, different from any other Victorian novel, which is that it has this total surprise ending. I don't think there's any way I can really talk about this novel without saying it. So <laughs> apologies to any readers who haven't read it, but, but the protagonist dies in a flood at the end of the novel. And it, and, you know, there's been a history of readers saying back to Henry James, that this flood comes out of nowhere, that, you know, you've been, you've spent hundreds of pages on this um, Bildung's roman with the central character whose name is Maggie, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, she dies in this catastrophic flood. Um, so, as you can imagine, it's a novel that's gotten a lot of interest from environmentally minded critics in recent years um, because it seems so unusual um, in that it's killing off its <laughs> protagonist in this environmental disaster at the end of the book, um, and it's very sad. So, I shouldn't I shouldn't laugh about it, but um, you know, a lot of uh, times when you when you read a novel over and over again, you sort of lose that that initial sense of of shock. Um, but so going so so thinking through the novel from an ecological perspective, 
if you just look at the opening sentence, the sentence opens with ships um, coming into the town of St. Augs, where Maggie lives, um, on the River Floss, which is, so it's the mill on the Floss. Um, her father owns uh, a grain mill on the you know, that's, it's actually not on the floss. It's technically not a tributary of the floss, but sorry, that's inside baseball for Victorianists. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, uh, so the book opens from the opening sentence with um, boats coming in um, with coal from Northern England and then shipping out grains and other commodities um, from the part of Lincolnshire where the novel is set. So um, it's really quite clear from the beginning that it's interested in, you know, water and in um, networks of global circulation, you know, through um, transport of commodities. And, and so the river Floss, which plays such a key role in the book because it's set at this mill, um, it's both um, the source of energy for, for Maggie's father's mill and also the um, kind of highway that powers, you know, trade into and out of this region. So the, the novel is set during the 1830s. And um, I mentioned earlier in the podcast about how crucial this time period was in terms of the transition to steam. And Maggie's father's mill is water powered. It's powered by the river. But throughout the novel, there's all this discussion um, from various, you know, capitalist members of the town and members of Maggie's family about transitioning the mill to steam power. And if they transitioned it to steam power, it would be, it would, it would, you know, basically be more profitable. Um, and this was, you know, in fact, what was happening in the 1830s, there was this wide scale transition from water power to steam power in a lot of British industries. Um, so I think the novel is super interesting as, you know, kind of an encapsulation of, uh, energy transition, energy regime change, and it's particularly invested in kind of thinking about what are the um, kind of cultural and um, uh, social aspects of a, a coal-powered energy system versus a water-powered energy system. So there's a lot of um, debates about water rights in the novel. This is like a huge subplot where there's all these people fighting over over water rights and, you know, um, the, this kind of central problem that water can't be, can't be easily privatized and can't be easily capitalized because it, it flows from one place to another. So who owns the river? Nobody owns the river. Um, whereas coal power, fossil fuels are much more amenable to capitalization and, and privatization and so forth. Um, so, you know, reading the novel through, through that lens, thinking about the energy systems, thinking about, um, the uh, affordances of different energy systems, I think really reframes Maggie's um, death at the end of the novel. Um, and one of the things that I'm interested in is that there's these two kind of rival marriage plots throughout the novel where Maggie has these two different romances and both of them are kind of like abruptly cut off at the end of the novel when she dies. And the, the last scene of the novel is one of her um, lovers, Philip Waken, going to visit her grave and it talks about how you know he's haunted by by Maggie and Philip and Maggie's secret romance had actually taken place almost entirely in an exhausted ironstone quarry in the novel because their families hate each other and so they have to meet in secret 
So they go to this exhausted quarry and that's where their relationship unfolds. So to me, that's a sign that Elliot is really thinking about, you know, this marriage plot as um, a way for novels to indicate kind of futurity. Um, you know, traditionally uh, within the novel, marriage plots and inheritance plots are a way for novelists to kind of point forward to a future beyond the novel, right? So it might end with an inheritance or it might end with a marriage. Um, in this case, we see this this courtship unfolding again in an exhausted stone quarry, um, iron stone quarry, in the context of, you know, this town that's transitioning to a new energy regime. Um, and then and then the marriage gets cut off. So I think it it really the that shocking ending is a way for Elliot to thematize through her novel um, the you know kind of questions about continuity and futurity and what's owed to future generations and things like this that were also coming up in discussion of resource exhaustion in this period. Okay, and I like I'd like to know. I went on a little long with that answer. I'll try no, to be shorter. That, that's great. That's great. Um, so I want to now go to kind of the opposite end of the spectrum in you know time and space and everything else and ask you about my personal favorite of the works that you analyzed, which you've referenced earlier, which is The Hobbit. Um, so, you know, what can this book that's written about Middle Earth tell us about the cultural impact of mining here in our world. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So first of all, I'll say that I didn't initially, you know, intend to write about Tolkien. I've always loved Tolkien. I mean, um, I started reading uh, his works at a pretty young age and um, have continued to reread them through my life. So I'm very familiar with, you know, the um, legendarium, as it's called, um, among Tolkien people. But I really you know, hadn't taught it before and hadn't ever thought of it as a subject for my research. Um, but then I was reading The Hobbit to my twins, I think when they were around five or, or six. So I was pretty far into the book at that point. And when I was reading it, I was, I just thought, oh my God, this is, this needs to be in my book because I was so struck by how many similarities there were between The Hobbit and the other works that I was thinking about for my speculative fiction chapter. So, um, you know, just to think um, on the level of setting, there's obviously so many underground settings in The Hobbit. I mean, there's the, the some of them are sort of cozy and nice, like Bilbo's whole underground, but then there's also a lot of frightening spaces, like the goblin tunnels where the ring is found um, by Bilbo. And um, there's the Smog's Lair, um, which is the object of, of the entire quest of the book. So um, reading, you know, rereading it in the context of thinking about the rise of science fiction and fantasy literature and um, the kind of huge popularity of utopian fiction in this period, um, one of the things I had noticed was this, this emphasis on underground settings in a lot of these works. So these are all kind of world building genres, right? They focus on building a secondary world um, that might mirror some aspects of our primary world, but also has some differences from it. Um, so one of the genres that was popular with the rise of um, these speculative genres in the late 19th century was hollow earth fiction. 
um, which are narratives that take place in these secondary worlds underground. Um, the Coming Race by Bulwer-Lytton is one novel that I talk about in the book that's really important in terms of the history of hollow earth fiction. So while I don't think The Hobbit is you know, explicitly hollow earth fiction, I think it's clearly influenced by that tradition. And that's why there's this kind of focus on underground settings. And you know, I only touched on a few of them, but there's quite a lot of them. The Wood Elf's Palace um, and so on and so forth. So um, I, so the argument in the book is that the kind of rise of the hollow earth novel and this, this, this fascination in speculative genres with underground settings has to do with the shift toward an extraction-based society, um, an extraction-based economy, the centrality of industrial mining to uh, the British empire in this period in terms of economics and um, social basis and, and so forth. Um, so that's one aspect of The Hobbit that I'm interested in. And then the, another curious thing about The Hobbit, and in this way it's different from the other books that I talk about in that chapter, is that it has this figure of the ring and there's there's a longstanding history of people thinking of the ring as a kind of figure for nuclear power and the dangers of nuclear power. And some of those um, connections, I think, become much more obvious in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which comes out um, uh, quite a bit later than than The Hobbit, about 15 to 20 years later. Yeah, um, 1954, 55. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, so uh you know, the, I think part of the reason, or a lot of the reasons for that reading um, are traceable to, to the trilogy. But still, there are, there are elements of um, the way the ring is depicted just in The Hobbit itself, you know, that, that tie in with this idea of energetic agencies. And I think also have, you know, some really interesting things to communicate about um, attachment and about our attachment to these underground resources that power our, our world and so forth in the way that, you know, um, characters get mysteriously attached to the ring. And again, some of that is brought out more in the trilogy later, but, but even in The Hobbit, you can see this already. So, um, so yeah, I became, so <laughs> rereading this book to my kids, I um, became really interested in thinking about the ways that um, it was sort of playing out these tropes of extractivism that I think were really central to the rise of speculative fiction more generally. And a lot of people have written on um, how Tolkien was so influenced by some of the other writers that are really key to my project, like um, William Morris, for example. Um, there's been a lot of work showing how um, Tolkien's, you know, writerly imagination was really fueled by the late career romances that William Morris wrote. Um, as well as by his other work too. And he was also, he, he was also a fan of um, Ryder Haggard's novels, which were, you know, really important in terms of uh, formulating the adventure uh, romance genre in the late 19th century. And um, although he, although Tolkien said that he didn't really care for the novel Treasure Island when he was a child, he's constantly using it as an example. He often refers to the time machine um, for examples too. So, you know, there's there's a lot of evidence even outside the novel of Tolkien's writerly imagination being shaped by the genres and texts that I'm that I'm um, talking about here. And so I thought it would be great to end on The Hobbit, which is a text that's so widely known and widely loved, to kind of pull together a lot of the somewhat more random 
you know, 19th century examples and to, to show how they, they shaped one of the, you know, better known fantasy novels of our time. Um, and also, you know, just one last thing I'll say about The Hobbit that's so interesting to me is that, um, as I'm sure you know, if you're a Tolkien fan, Tolkien was born in South Africa and his parents had been brought to um, or had gone to South Africa because his father was working in the banking sector there, which was really devoted basically to bankrolling mines. Um, so, you know, Britain's um, imperial interests in South Africa were completely shaped by the um, quote unquote discovery of gold and diamonds and other underground resources there. So Tolkien has this, like a lot of the writers in the study, he has this kind of um, family history that's shaped by extractive industry, global extractive industry. And, you know, he had, although he did move to move back to England when he was three, there were stories about his early childhood in South Africa that were, you know, told and, and treasured within, within the family. So, um, this is a case with a lot of the writers I talk about in the book, but there's a way that even just by looking at their life stories, you can see how they were, how their, the conditions of their social existence were shaped by extractive industry in a way that um, underscores some of their imaginative investments in it. Okay. So I'd like to now tie this into the present day because this attitude towards resources like coal that was so prevalent through the period that you're talking about of, you know, being worried that there's, you know, it's going to run out that, uh, you know, we've got this finite uh, resource that, you know, maybe in our grandchildren's time or something, you know, there's not going to be any more of it left is very different from how, you know, we usually think about coal now, which is, you know, there's too much of it. We can't stop using it and we're, we're destroying our climate by, uh, by digging up and burning too much of it. And we need to learn to leave it under the ground. Uh, so what does an understanding of this historical period that you're writing about, like, how does that apply to or, or what can we learn from that for our current situation with respect to mining and fossil fuels? I mean, I think one thing we can learn from it is just an appreciation for how um, deeply we've all kind of been shaped just through language and through stories and narratives um, and literary form um, through these kind of structures of thinking about the world that are extractive in nature, right? So I think this is part of what my book is really devoted to uncovering is the way that our um, imagination has been shaped by extractivism in deeper ways than maybe we have fully realized. Um, I think there's some literature from the past that we can look to as a, as a kind of resource for thinking about decarbonization, either because it's imagining a, a post-extractive existence. I talk about a couple of utopian novels in the book that are imagining post-extractive society. So, so I think there are, there are some examples of texts in the book that, that can help us in that sense. But I think there are other texts that really are just kind of revealing, you know, the depth and, and pervasiveness of um, extractive ways of thinking about the, the earth, which is to say, you know, this idea of taking something that's irreplaceable with no plan for what's going to happen when it runs out in the future, right? Um, so this kind of uh, idea of borrowing from the future, to use a phrase that Rob Nixon uses in Slow Violence um, to, to, to show how many of our um, 
literary genres, even very popular literary genres like adventure stories and treasure hunt stories, um, how deeply those are, those are shaped by those ways of thinking. Um, so, you know, in general, it's not, I think, um, a book that's saying, oh, if we all, <laughs> all read 19th century literature, you know, it'll be easier to decarbonize. But I think it maybe shows the, the challenge that we have on an intellectual level and a, a cultural level and a narrative level to kind of retell these stories. Um, and for me, it's also uh, one of the things that I found when I was working on the book is that there's something really remarkable about how recently this shift happened, right? You're reading these books from 150 years ago or less. And um, it, to, to think that, um, you know, that the, that the whole fossil fuel industry and all the kind of path dependencies that we're stuck in now came to be in this relatively recent past and a past that seems actually extremely familiar when you're reading the books, right? When you're just reading the kind of stories of friendships, relationships, um, people growing up, finding their way to make in the world, right? There's so much of it that seems so familiar. Um, and yet this was the beginning of this um, energy system that we that it often seems like we're completely stuck in. So, so to me, that that is one other helpful aspect of, of looking back to these texts to think about how quickly things can change, how, you know, the, the energy transition to fossil fuels happened very quickly. The energy transition off of fossil fuels is not happening quickly, but it could happen quickly, right? We could, we could look at this um, time frame from 1830s to now as, um, as being hopeful just in the sense of, um, the transition happening so quickly and so recently that maybe we're not as immersed in it as we sometimes feel. So I think I've said two opposite things. I've said we've immersed in it and maybe we're not immersed in it, but, <laughs> but I think both lessons can be taken from the book. That's not too confusing. <laughs> All right. Great. So to wrap up our interview here, uh, we always like to end by asking about other projects that you're working on. You know, what else can we be on the lookout for uh, from you? Um, well, I'm not uh, in. I don't have another book project uh, on the go right yet, but I've been involved in a lot of projects at my university in terms of um, expanding our curricular offerings in environmental humanities, developing uh, graduate emphasis for um, PhD students who want to specialize in environmental humanities and trying to find more ways to work across disciplines with colleagues in the humanities and social sciences who are also devoted to environmental questions. Um, so one of the kind of outcomes of that is that I'm uh, working on a research cluster that was started by a colleague in the history department who um, focuses on uh, mining projects in Brazil and Latin America um, to kind of th think, you know, more deeply about mining histories in terms of global inequities in power, right? And to think about regions of the world that have suffered the most from extractivism and neo-extractivism. So I'm interested to think more about that, about um, Latin America specifically as a kind of setting for extractivism. Um, and I also, you know, want to continue to find ways to um, connect with people working in the environment and other fields and um, to uh, 
work together as well on activist projects on campus around decarbonization. That's something that lots of us at UC Davis have been working on too, trying to push the campus um, to you know move, move faster on some of the changes that it can make. So anyway, those are some of the things I'm working on right now. All right. Well, that all sounds great. So uh, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You just heard a conversation with Elizabeth Carolyn Miller, author of Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion, published this year by Princeton University Press.